Well, this morning we continue our series in 2 Samuel. We'll be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be um, some in the pew back in front of you. I think they're red, um, but, but you are welcome to use that and follow along. But we're going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 7 uh, in, in just a minute. Well, as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we're coming to a, a very significant chapter. 2 Samuel 7 is, is one of those chapters that you should know. Not know in, in terms of, of memorize. I'm not saying you should have it memorized. Though if you, you were to memorize 2 Samuel 7, I, I don't think that would be bad. Uh, but I mean you should know it as in you should know what happens in 2 Samuel 7 and you should understand its significance. And so we'll see in the immediate context it's a significant chapter but it's also significant in a larger Old Testament story, and it's even larger in the big story of redemption. In, in the, the timeline of salvation history, 2 Samuel 7 is an important chapter, so you should be aware of 2 Samuel chapter 7, but don't just take my word for it. Listen to some of the quotes that I came across um, this week as I, was, as I was reading about this chapter. So here's what some people say. One commentator says, this chapter is, quote, the climax of David's life. Okay, that's important, David. David's an important figure. Another says this chapter is, quote, the dramatic and theological center of the entire Samuel corpus. Okay, so he says it's, it's the, the dramatic and theological center of, of the story of Samuel. So first and second Samuel, he says this is the center. Another says in this chapter we have, quote, the most crucial theological statement in the Old Testament. Okay, do you see that we're expanding? So David's life and the story of Samuel in the Old Testament. Yet another says, quote, The Lord's words recorded here in this chapter are arguably, or arguably, play the single most significant role of any scripture found in the Old Testament in shaping the Christian understanding of Jesus. These words from 2 Samuel 7 played an essential preparatory role in developing the messianic expectations that were fulfilled in Jesus. Okay, so, so he's saying that, that what's laid out here shapes and prepares for what comes in Jesus. Then one more. This chapter, quote, was to become the source of the messianic hope as it developed in the message of the prophets in the psalmist. And then lastly, this, this cannot be said any stronger than this author. He said, quote, this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Okay, so it's not just me saying it's important. There, there's all of these, these commentators, all these authors who are highlighting this is the high point of the books of First and Second Samuel. It's the high point of David's life. It's the most crucial statement in the entire Old Testament. It's the Old Testament passage that shapes how Jesus is understood. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. As you can see, this is an important chapter, and we should be aware of what happens. So let's turn there and let's read Second Samuel chapter 7. So you can follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole chapter here at the outset, so follow along as I read 2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king, that is David, he said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, quote, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built a house for me of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. I took you from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over, over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Verse 18, Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you've brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God beside you according to all that we have heard with our ears." And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out people, driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, they, now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that, it, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Let me pray as we, as we dig into this. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word that is to us. Thank you for your word that makes us wise unto salvation that is through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I ask now that you'd make this time profitable for us. Would you help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you? Would you encourage our faith in Christ our Savior? 
and in your promises to us in this passage. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this chapter, chapter 7, it breaks down into to two sections, but I've divided it into three. So if you notice there, at verse 17, after verse 17, there's a, there's a break. So here's, here's what happens, what, what, what the Lord says to David, and then in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, it's what David, how David responds. But here's the, the three sections to outline. We're going to look first, David's desire, which is just the first three verses, David's desire, and then, then second, we'll look at God's design, which is verses 4 through 17, and then the third section, the third point we'll look at is David's response, which is what we just read, verses 18 through 29. So there's the outline, David's desire, God's design, and then David's response. So let's begin there in the first section, verses 1 through 3, David's desire. So as we pick this up, remember we, we've just had David establishing his, his capital in Jerusalem, and he, he, the final act of chapter 6 is he, he brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and all seemed to be well. And so we find here in verses 1 through 3, David is devising a plan. He has a plan, and it's a good plan, isn't it? It's a good plan that David devises here. So he'd been anointed king over all of Israel. He'd established Jerusalem as Israel's capital, and he brought the ark back. And so this tells us that he had rest from all his surrounding enemies. So this man of war now had peace. And so as David sits back and reflects, maybe him and Nathan the prophet are having coffee in the moonlight, just talking about all that's happened. And David, in reflecting, comes to a realization, something that, that he thinks, wait a minute, there's a problem here. So in verse 2, David says to the prophet Nathan, he says, Nathan, here, here's the problem. I'm living here in this massive, posh, beautiful cedar house, this palace. And look right over there, there's the temporary tent that the ark of God is dwelling in. So David, David's thinking and he's talking, and Nathan right there stops him. Notice David doesn't explain what he wants to do. And he stops right there. He says, here, here's, I'm living here, and I see that there. Nathan stops him. He knows what he's thinking. He says, go do all that's in your heart. The Lord's with you. So he knows what David's thinking. He says, oh, yeah, that's right. That is a great observation. Go do what's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And so in these first three verses, David sees the disparity between his house and God's house right? Obvious. Here's this huge cedar house, and here's a temporary tent. And so David says, I'm king. I want to honor the Lord and build him a house. So, so David's desire here, I think it's fair to say he wants to honor the Lord. He wants to honor the Lord. I live here. I, I want to build God a bigger house. It's not right for me to live here and the ark to be there. And so I just want to stop right here and make a point of application, and that application has to do with David's desire, I think David's desire is good. I think it's a good desire, and I think we can learn about this. Learn from this. A desire to honor the Lord is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. I don't think we can say that David is in the wrong here. I don't think David's wrong in desiring to, to build the Lord a house. It isn't wrong for David to want to do this great thing for the Lord. In fact, we're going to see that great thing is going to be done. And so David wants to do it. As we read further on, the plan doesn't come to fruition under David, but that doesn't mean it's bad. It means the Lord says, not you and not now. But it doesn't say you, you shouldn't desire that. And so I think we can learn from the good desire. It's going to be carried out, but the Lord says, not you, not now. And so the, the, the simple point of, of application would be for us to recognize it's okay to have plans, to have ideas, dreams even of ways that you can bless or serve or honor the Lord. Big dreams. 
You can want to do great things for the Lord. If you're a young person here, that's not wrong. You should dream huge and say, I want to see the world come to know Jesus through me. That's a good dream to have. You should dream big. It's good to have those big desires for the Lord. But what we learn from David's plan here is that though never bad, a desire to honor the Lord must always be subject to the Lord. So our our desire to honor Him has to be subject to Him. So here, David's desire to honor the Lord, his plans, they're put on hold because the Lord clearly says no. He says no, and so David says, okay, I submit. It's not your will, so that's fine. In other words, David's desire to honor the Lord doesn't override his submission to the Lord. And so David doesn't say, no, 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 I want to do this thing, so I'm going to do it regardless of what you say. Do you see how foolish that would be for David to say, I want to honor the Lord, though the Lord said, no, I'm going to still do it. And so we have to be careful, right, when our desire to honor the Lord, when our plans or our hopes or our dreams, when they're put on hold, or when the Lord clearly says, not you, not now, because he can say that, when he says that, when it's clear, we have a problem if we say, no, I'm going to override that stop sign. I'm going to go over that roadblock that the Lord has clearly put there, and I'm still going to do this because it's a good thing that I want to do for the Lord. That, that's when our problem comes, because what happens then, how easy is it for it to happen what happens is our pride and our selfishness drive us, and we're no longer concerned about honoring the Lord. We're, we're concerned about getting our agenda carried out, our plans fulfilled. And so let us beware. Let us aim to honor the Lord and do big things for Him. I mean, write down some big plans that you have for this church. I would love for you as, as people to think through, what could the Lord do at this address? Dream big. Then think, how can I do this? And let's, start, let's start pursuing them, but let us always beware. When the Lord puts a stop sign, we must submit to that God's God's will may not be for this church to grow to 500 people. And if it doesn't ever grow to be bigger than this, that doesn't mean that that it's not God's plan. God's will is not our will, and God has a plan, and we'll carry it out. And so we just want to follow him. Let's let's look at our second point then. After David's plan, so verses 4 through 17, we see David's plan meets God's promise. So in verses 4 through 17, so the prophet Nathan in verse 4, he's probably a bit embarrassed, don't you think? So the Lord comes to him and says, this, this isn't the plan. And I, said, I think it's fair to say Nathan probably didn't inquire of the Lord when he gave affirmation to David. I think he said, oh, sounds like a good plan, let's do it. So Nathan probably didn't inquire, he just said, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. And so the Lord goes to Nathan, the prophet, and says, no, 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 that's not the plan. Here's what you're going to tell David. And so the Lord delivers a message to Nathan that Nathan in turn would deliver to David. So that's how the Lord worked through his prophet. He spoke to the prophet who then was the Lord's mouthpiece. And so here's the message that he gives to David. First, in verses 4 through 7, the Lord gives a bit of a history lesson. He gives a history lesson regarding his relationship with Israel. And, and he points out, I've never had a house. I've been Israel's Lord for a long time, and I've never had a house. So, so notice there, would you build me a house to dwell in? Is that what you really want to do, David? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've never had a house. And why? Notice, notice why the Lord hasn't had a house. But I've been moving about in a tent from my dwelling in all the places where I've moved with the people of Israel. So he hasn't had a house because the people haven't had a place. So he says, that, that hasn't hindered me. I've been with my people all throughout this. The lack of house doesn't affect me, David. You don't have to do it. I don't need a house. I don't need it. It doesn't bother me one bit that I don't have a permanent home, and neither should you be bothered by it, David. 
David, I've, I've been present with my people and I'm a pilgrim God with my pilgrim people. If anything, a house would have hindered my presence with my people. And so the Lord says to David, if, if I wanted a house, I'd, I'd let you know. The Lord is the, initiator, is the initiator, not David. And so David has good intentions, but he's overstepping his bounds. And so the Lord says, would you do this for me? It's not necessary. And he continues, notice in verses 8 through 17, in this, this kind of second half of his address, the Lord reminds David of all that he's done for him. He says, let me remind you what I've done for you, David. I've been with you. And he continues, here's what I've done for you, but he also says, here's what I'm going to do. So if you look in, in verses 8 through, 8 through 17, it's, I will, I will, I will. These verses are filled with promise after promise after promise. And the Lord, in his promises to David, will see he links the good of David with Israel. And so he says, these blessings I'm making to you, David, they're for your good, but they're also for the good of Israel. So, so notice what he says to David there in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people. Notice he doesn't say king, right? Who's their, who's their king? The Lord's their king. So I made you prince, David, over Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. So that's to David. I'll make you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So that's a promise to Israel. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that appointed judges. Again, promise to Israel. And again, I will give you rest from all your enemies, David. So do you see how David and Israel, they're connected here in these promises. David will be great. Israel will be safe. Israel will have no, no more affliction from its enemies. And David will have rest from his enemies. And so the fate of the Lord's king and the Lord's people are directly linked here in these promises to David. And he continues in his message to David. It's already, it's already been a, a grace-filled message, we could say. David's been reminded of his biography. The Lord has been with him. Message of good news for David and, and for God's people. But it gets better. Because then the Lord turns to the subject that got the whole thing started. And he starts talking about a house. The Lord wants to talk to David about a house, but it's not a house that David's going to build for the Lord. Far from David building a house for God, the Lord turns the tables. And this is a wordplay on house. He says, okay, you want to build me a house? Let me tell you the plan, David. And so he, he lays out the plan that God has to actually build David a house, a, a dynasty, not this physical dwelling, but a, but a, but a dynasty. And so look, look there in verse 11. Look at these promises. As we read these, it's clear right, that, that some of these are fulfilled immediately in Solomon. But as, as we read these, some of these, you're like, wait a minute, is that Solomon? That's not Solomon. So there's a, 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 an immediate and then a future fulfillment. And so we'll talk about it in a minute, but, but just think as, as we read. Think about these promises. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, so, so when you're dead, David, I'm going to raise up a son. So when you're gone, there's going to be your son who's going to rule in your place. Verse 13, and he, that is your son, he's going to build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. 
Your throne shall be established forever. So, so what's the Lord saying to David in these promises? What's he saying? Most basically, right, the Lord is promising David that his line, that, that his family, his dynasty, his descendants will rule long after David's gone. That, that's, the, that's the fundamental purpose of the promise. When David dies, one of his own sons is going to rule after him, and that son is the one who's going to build the Lord's house. Now, who is that son who builds the Lord's house? The Solomon. We're going to see that it's clear that Solomon builds the temple. And so the Lord is telling David, your dynasty is going to continue. Your son, David, is going to be in a position to do this great thing for me. And as we stop in this immediate context, think about the, the history of the monarchy in Israel so far. How many kings have we had? David is the second. So it's been Saul and David. How many families have been in, on the throne? David is the second king in the second family. So at some point, I'm sure David in the back of his mind has thought, okay, I'm king now, but, but what's going to happen after me? Is this trend going to continue? But here, the Lord promises, David, your son will rule. He's going to rule, and when he sins, right, the Lord isn't, isn't, isn't foolish here. He knows that, that these, these sons of David are going to be sinful, but when they sin, they're not going to lose the kingdom like Saul did. Instead, they're going to be disciplined. They're going to be corrected, and, and in fact, they would be. They would be. They'd be, they'd be disciplined by, by exile and by other nations. But the Lord is going to be dealing with sinful kings in this line, but, but the Lord says, David, this sin is not going to overrule my kingdom. I'm going to deal with the sin of your sons, but your dominion is going to extend forever. And he says to David, my steadfast love will not depart from you. I'm committed to you and your offspring, similar to the way that he made the promise to Abraham and to Abraham's offspring. God makes promises that are tied to the descendants of David. And this is grace upon grace. The Lord is speaking these words of grace and mercy to David, but, but they reach their climax in verse 16. Notice the length of time that this promise is connected to. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You notice the, the length of time there. We'll come back to these promises and, and we'll see how they're fulfilled kind of long term, but, but here in the immediate context, this is good news for David, isn't it? You're going to rule forever. You've finally been anointed king, and your rule, your line is going to rule forever. It's good news for David, but it's also good news for Israel. And so, for the rest of the Samuel narrative, we know, okay, there's going to be one king. Right? So, so David is, is going to be the one king. So we can recognize, okay, David, right, he's been here all along, but he's going to be here for, for a while. So we should recognize David is a key figure. He plays a bigger role in this story. But even more significant than the role of David, right, the role, the focus here is on the Lord who makes this promise to him, the, the covenant. This is a covenant that God makes with David. This is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And so the Lord wants David to know. And so, so as he makes this promise, what, is, what does he want David to know about this promise? One, one commentator says that the word that should be used is indefectible. The Lord wants to communicate to David this promise is indefectible. Another Another author said it's unstoppable. So, so the Lord is communicating to David, nothing is going to stop this from coming to pass. David, take this to the bank. It's as good as done because I'm saying this. I'm promising it to you. I'm committing myself to you. And that's what a covenant is. He's saying, I'm committing this to you. And so the Lord wants David to know this is not going to fail. Death isn't going to annul it. 
right? It's going to carry on after you die, David. Your death isn't going to change this. Death won't annul it. Sin can't destroy it. So yeah, your sons are going to sin, but I'm going to correct them. I'm going to deal with them. I'm not going to cast them off. Sin can't destroy it, and time will not exhaust it. It's going to last forever. Now, how does, what does David think about this? Wow, forever, that's a long time. This is a great promise from a great God, which leads to our third section, David's response. So how does David respond? Now, we'll talk about these promises a little more at the end here, but, but let's look at David's response, verses 18 through 29. And so as David responds, there's a sense in which this whole section is, is application for us. Because just think about what's happened. David has just experienced God's, God's unmerited favor. God said, okay, I'm going to commit myself to you forever and to your family, to your offspring. So, so David has just been a, a recipient of this unmerited favor. In fact, his entire life has been an experience of God's unmerited favor, God's kindness to him. And David's response to God's unmerited favor is a response of humility and worship and confident prayer. And so, and so there's a sense, and we'll say this at the end, but, but we should respond to God's grace in the same way that David does. So notice David's response, verses 18 through 22. So he goes, he goes in and he sat before the Lord. Right? What, what, a, what a good picture, just sitting before the Lord. Right? Do you sit before the Lord? Do you make practice of that? Just sitting before the Lord? So David does that. He goes and he sits before the Lord. And look at the first question. Who am I, O Lord God? Who am I that you've brought me this far and that you can con- continue to be with me in my house for a while to come? Who am I, right? This, this is humility. Why me? Why would I be the recipient of this promise? Why? What more can I say, Lord? Because of your promise, according to your own heart, you've brought about all this greatness. This, this is all your plan. I, this isn't my plan. I couldn't conceive of this. Who am I? Why would you show me this favor? You are great, O Lord God. There's no God besides you. And so David is responding to these promises and to this character that's on display in these promises with humility and worship. Who am I? You are God. Who am I? You are God. There's humility and worship all intertwined here in David's response. And he continues, he reflects on God's kindness to Israel. You've been with your people. And now, because of this promise to me, you're going to be with Israel forever. Wow, we're not going to ever lose you forever. Remember, the promises to David can't be separated from Israel. So the fact that he says, I'm going to be with you and your offspring forever, they're going to rule forever, means they're going to have people to rule forever. And then finally, in verses 25 to 29, David concludes by confidently praying God's promises back to him. Did you notice that? So, So David makes these petitions before the Lord at the end of this response. And all of his petitions are grounded in God's promises. Notice verse 25. Confirm forever the word that you have spoken. So confirm your word. Or verse 27. He says, For you, O Lord of hosts, you've made this revelation to your servant. You've said it, not me. That's what David's saying. You said it. Confirm your word. Verse 28. You are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing for your servant. David isn't asking God to do something that David isn't sure if God is willing to do or not. Right? He, can, he can pray boldly because God has told him exactly what it's going to do. So he says, do it. Bring it to pass. Make it happen. You've said it. Be pleased to fulfill your promise to me. David's confidence comes from the fact that God has spoken. You are God and your words are true and you've promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever. 
Again, do what you said you're going to do. May it please you to do that. I don't deserve it. But Lord, you've said it. So instead of sitting here and arguing about it, do it. Do it. Carry out your promises. You've spoken and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. And that's David's response. And so, so here we'll, we'll get to the application. And so first, responding to grace, as I mentioned just a minute ago. So David's response here, I think, is instructive to all Christians. Now, yes, David's unique. David had a unique role to play, but the same God who graciously makes and keeps these promises to David is the God who's graciously made and kept promises to you, if you're a Christian. Every Christian in this room has received grace upon grace. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, you've been poured a cup full of grace, overflowing from the Lord's hand. You, you're an object of God's mercy. And this experience of God's grace ought to affect us in a similar way that it affected David. So with humility, so we ought to respond. We, we ought to respond with humility with the question, who am I? Who am I that, that you are mindful of me? Me, that, that you would send your son for me? That you'd make eternal promises to me? That you'd forgive my sins? Who am I, right? This is, the, this is the heart of the Christian identity. Who am I? I'm no one. Yet, God, you've shown me mercy. I don't deserve it. We ought to be humbled by God's grace to us. We ought to be humbled because we know us. Right? If you think that you deserve God's mercy, you ought to, you ought to examine yourself because I know me and I don't deserve it. If I were God, I, I wouldn't choose me. We know us. We know us better than anyone. And that God would, would have mercy on me of all people. If you're anything like me, you know that you of all people don't deserve what God's given you. Friend, this, this, this is the, the heart of Christianity. It's not a religion of merit. So if you hear you're not a Christian, hey, don't, don't think, I've got to get better, then I can come to the Lord. That's, that's the opposite of Christianity. You can't deserve it. You can't merit it. It's not, it's not a, a, a religion of works. We all fail. And yet, while enemies, while rebels, God shows his kindness to us by sending his son to die for us. So that we might be welcomed, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done for us, that we might worship him. And so if you're not a Christian, hear this. You can't save yourself, but Jesus sure can. There's hope for you no matter how bad you think you are. No matter how bad you know you are, there's hope for you in Christ. And he pours out grace upon grace to those who don't deserve it. So we we ought to be clothed with humility, Christian. There's no room for pride or self-righteousness in the life of the Christian. It's like the, the question that Paul asked, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast in it like you did receive it? Right? As you find yourself, as I find myself operating out of this pride, I need a reality check. I've been given much, much different than what I deserve. I've been given grace when I deserve the opposite of grace. It's unmerited and, and ought to walk in humility. An experience of God's grace humbles like nothing else. Well, well also David responds with worship here. He responds with worship with praise. And so, so recognizing God's grace, it doesn't puff up. And it doesn't say, oh, look how great I am. Instead, it says, look how great God is, that he would show mercy to me. And so David responds with worship. 
that God would show him kindness. And then and then lastly, David responds with confident prayer. He prays God's promises back to him. Right? And so, so prayer, I mean, here, here's one thing that, that we should work at is prayer should consist of God's promises. So, so think of God's word as promises to us. And so as you're reading in, in your, your quiet time, you're reading through scripture, if you see a promise there that's for you, pray it back to the Lord. He will finish what he started. Lord, finish what you started in my life. I'm making a mess of it right now. I'm struggling to honor you in this way and this way. Finish what you've started. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Right? Maybe some of you feel alone. Right? Pray God's promise back to him. Lord, I feel alone. Be with me. Help me know you're with me. Right? Pray God's promises back because when you're praying God's promises back to him, you should not lack confidence. He has made promises and we can, we can boldly proclaim them back to him. Right? When the enemy presses in, you're guilty. You're guilty. I can't believe you did that. You're guilty. Right? There's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. And that's a promise. That's a promise. Well, then the final application. This is, this is the main application that we'll close with. Jesus is the son of David. So here, here's the application. This is an application to help us understand chapter 7 in light of the whole Bible. Jesus is the forever king that was promised David. Did you know that? So the promise made to David here, the king, the son, right? Yeah, Solomon fulfilled some, some of these promises, but David was the forever king that, that was promised to David. Jesus is the son of David. And so think about this. We won't work far through these. I've got a lot of passages that, that are on the screen that will come up. So, so this promise to David, so we're in 2 Samuel. So there's a lot in the history of Israel that's going to come after this. Okay, so, so after Solomon becomes king and Solomon leaves, right, the kingdom splits immediately. Right? So, so this, this unified kingdom, it's pretty, pretty short-lived. And so Solomon becomes king and the kingdom splits. And so as this promise functions in the Old Testament... Right, so some people say, yes, yeah, Solomon fulfilled it. But then they see the, the kingdom divided and they see worthless kings. Right? The, there's this promise that carries throughout the Old Testament. So that the prophets, they hold on to this. So what they see is, wait a minute, these aren't sons of David. This isn't David's son who's ruling. These aren't like David. And so there's this promise, wait a minute, there, there's a king coming one day. And so this functions in the life of the prophets. So because David's, this clearly isn't what the Lord was promising to David, there's this future hope that extends. So, so even in exile, the Israelites are saying, David's son is still going to rule one day. And so, so let me just mention some of these passages. Ezekiel 37, 21. So listen to what Ezekiel says. So here, here's a prophet later on, one of the major prophets. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Okay, so this is after. They've already been dispersed from Jerusalem, and now he's saying, I'm going to do this in the future, and I will make them one nation and one land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be over them all. Where does that one king over them all come from? It comes from 2 Samuel 7. So there's a prophet Ezekiel saying, there's a day coming, there's a future hope, there's one king that's going to rule all of God's people. Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. When Jeremiah is written, David's been long gone. Yet Jeremiah is still saying there's going to be a righteous branch from David that's going to reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. 
Isaiah 11.1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. And so Jesse, that was David's father. So there's a, there's a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler of Israel, who's coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So, so where does this idea that there's going to be one ruler coming in Israel? It's all from 2 Samuel 7. And so this promise sustains the hope of the Old Testament, the prophets and the Psalms. They, they long for the day when God's forever king will rule. And so this promise to David that he'll have a ruler on the throne forever is the constant hope of discouraged and exiled Israel. This is the promise that the prophets continually point to, the idea that the son of David is this messianic category that was firmly established here in 2 Samuel 7. Which is why, surprise, when Jesus comes into the picture of the New Testament, what better way for the gospel writers and the New Testament authors to describe the Messiah than to understand him as who? The son of David. Right? You can read over this, but, but look at these passages. Jesus is the forever king. So, so, so notice Luke 1. You can write this down. I'm going to read it. Luke 1. So we all know the, the narrative of the birth narrative where the Lord visits Mary. The angel says to, Lord, to Mary, don't be afraid for you found favor with God. But, but notice what else the angel says. Behold, you're going to conceive in your womb and you're going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. So you see the category, this forever king of David? Jesus comes and Mary at the birth before Jesus is even born says, this is the son of David who's going to rule forever. Matthew 1, the, the first book in the New Testament, the first verse, it's a genealogy, right? So-and-so begat, begat, begat. But the very beginning, verse 1 the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who Matthew wants us to know is who? The son of David. 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Romans 1, Paul again, he says, this is an introduction. A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, right? So here's the gospel that was promised beforehand through the prophets concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We'll end with these two. Revelation 5.5. So here's this, 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 this vision of John in, in heaven. And one of the elders say to me, so, so no one can, can open the scroll, and there, there's weeping and mourning because they, they don't know what's going to happen, and, and no one is there who's able to open the scroll, this unfolding of history. In verse 5 of Revelation 5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Why, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, and he can open the scroll. The root of David, right? The, the risen, ruling, reigning Christ has authority to open this scroll. And he's identified as the root of David. And then the very last chapter of Revelation, verse 16, right, these are the final words or, or the final section. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is the forever king promised to David. 
And so as we gather here today, we, we recognize that, that Jesus was promised in 2 Samuel 7, and the New Testament confirms that over and over and over, and that's important because as we gather here today, right, we are God's people, we do so as those who are willingly under the rule of the Son of David. And so the king that was promised to David, we are his subjects now. The Lord is king, right? So that, that, that's Acts 2. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And the people in Acts 2 say, well, what we have to do, he says, repent. And so we gather, we recognize that God has made this man, Jesus, the son of David, Lord and Christ, who, by the way, is not only the son of David, he's also the Lord of David. That's another sermon for another day. But we've repented and put our trust in the forever king which is good news for us as his subjects, as his citizens. Let's pray as we close.